0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us.
2: Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago.
1: Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis.
2: Twice a month, as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special conference edition of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Esposito, from the Institute of Social Research at the University of Michigan. Um, In today's special episode, we're joined by a panel of participants from the ongoing IAPHS annual meeting. This discussion will be led by Dr. Patrice Williams, a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, Today, we will discuss their work on participatory research methods to transform local political economies of health. Uh, Dr. Williams, welcome to Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Uh, Could you give us a brief introduction of the discussion today? As well as introduce the participants.
3: Yes, thank you so much. Today I'm joined by scholars from the fields of urban planning and social work discussing who's welcomed, counted, and holds power within the traditional boundaries of place and how that influences health outcomes. So what do we mean by place? Well, place can be understood as a site that combines location. So think of Like the latitude and longitudinal coordinates of a particular place. And then the locale, the physical aesthetic of a place. Is it mountainous? Is it grasslands? And the other component is the sense of place, the emotions that that place may invoke. Now, in addition to these three, three components, we also need to think about places do not have a single identity. It actually has multiple identities. And part of that is due to the way we interact with that space. Different people may walk away with different emotions, identities attached to that one location. But something else we need to consider that it's not stagnant. It's not frozen in time. It's an actual process, meaning that a classification one day may completely change. So, for example, when cities urbanized and part of urban expansion, they absorbed areas that may have previously been classified as rural as part of the urban area. So at one time point, it was rural. At a next time point, it was now urban. So... Another concept you may hear us talk about is space. And it's very abstract in comparison to place. So the best way to describe it is using a personal example. So I grew up in South Florida, like the Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. And people familiar with that region will know there's a lot of cultural enclaves. So they're like Little Haiti, Little Havana. In my area of Fort Lauderdale is where we have like a West Indian um, cultural enclave. So it's a lot of Caribbean countries. And so it was not geographically marked. When you entered that space, you knew it was different. You hear people from different countries speaking different dialects. You will also see the difference in the food opportunities that were available to you. You see the way that people interact with people were very different. And it was a place where we brought a part of our homeland to another location to make us feel like we still got that cultural ties, those similarities. So we created this space that was unique to us within a larger place, if that makes sense. So now why is this important? Well, within the field of urban and regional planning, we're not just focusing on the physical boundaries in the sense of like, where is road infrastructure? Where are we putting commercial versus residential development? We're also thinking about the social, the economic, the political components that also influence how a place is designed. And also how it influences the power dynamics, the geographic boundaries, and who's included politically and socially. So, using the four action—so so if we think of one of the four action areas of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Culture of Health Action Framework, it's about creating healthier and more equitable communities. And in achieving health equity it means everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be healthy. So therefore we're acknowledging that there are structural factors such as like structural racism and different social factors on the racialized social systems that exist within the American system could be key, are key drivers of injustices in health and equity. So as we begin our discussion, I would like to formally introduce everyone. And all the members of today's podcast are either an alumna or current scholars in the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Research Scholars Program. And as um, Michael previously mentioned, I am Dr. Patrice Williams. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. And my doctoral training is in urban and regional planning. So from my lens, I'm examining how urban policies and planning decisions shape where we live and how that could produce health disparities and inequities among Black residents, particularly focusing on, like, Things like residential displacement pressure and how that could be affecting sleep outcomes among Black residents in Southwest Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Christy Roybold is a PhD candidate in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Denver, and she's studying place-based determinants of maternal and infant health. Interesting fact, she has hiked a volcano in the morning and it erupted that afternoon. Um, she's also a mom with two young sons and loves photography. Next, we have Monica Gutierrez, who's a PhD student in the School of Social Work at Arizona State University. She's a first-generation college student born near the U.S.-Mexico border. Interesting fact about her is her interest in place and space is in the context of social work, and it comes from her family's intergenerational experiences of forced displacement as farm laborers. She enjoys cooking traditional recipes from historic Mexican countries. Next, we have Christina Gomez-Fidal, who is a Ph.D. candidate in the School of Social Welfare at the University of California, Berkeley. And her research is focused on the political determinants of health. And her interesting facts are her love of political systems is rooted in her parents' unique immigration stories from El Salvador and Cuba. And Another thing is she loves anime, which is pretty cool. Um, Jenny Witter. Last but not least, Jenny Whittaker is a Ph.D. candidate in the City Planning and the Whitesmith School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania. And she studies how place and community contribute to maternal and child health in rural areas, looking beyond the medical system and how community infrastructure can really better serve families. So to start us off, Christy, can you just tell us a little bit on what you'll focus on in today's discussion?
4: Of course. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be a part of this conversation. Today, I'm going to talk about my dissertation research, uh, which is focused on urban neighborhood environments and maternal and infant health. My dissertation is guided by feminist neighborhood political ecology, which kind of consi- it considers the intersection of political and economic structures and gendered health outcomes at the neighborhood level. My work right now is specific to Denver, and I take a multiscalar approach. So I think about structural conditions, specifically for my dissertation, historical redlining, uh, a racist housing policy from the 1930s, and how that converges in contemporary local neighborhood conditions and mothers' lived experiences of place and, and their birth outcomes. I use qualitative geographic information systems, or I am using them right now. And it's an attempt to better understand and contextualize spatial clusters of preterm birth. It's my hope that this approach will be a more inclusive methodological approach that considers mother's place-based experiences and expertise, which are often ignored or silenced in traditional, more quantitatively focused spatial research.
3: Nice. Now, Jenny, isn't your work similar to Chrissy's in some way?
2: Yeah, exactly. So I also study how place and space contribute to maternal and child health, uh, but mostly in rural environments. Um, I'm in the planning field, which nearly exclusively focuses on cities. Um, So thinking about planning for health in rural areas where there aren't a lot of planners often translates to working with small local governments. Um, And in rural Pennsylvania, where I work, place-based health effects are often focused on land use and resource extraction, um, things like mining coal, oil, natural gas, um, and the fallout that comes from that. Um, I think mothers are very aware of how these environmental challenges affect community health, and they know how place um, either traps them or grounds them, and how it traps or grounds generations. Um, but their opinions and experiences are, I think, rarely welcomed or represented in low uh, local government processes. So... Today I'm gonna talk a bit about my dissertation research with mothers across rural Pennsylvania. Um, I'm using photo voice and story mapping to share um, how they portray the environment as contributing to their health and their children's health, um, and how they would wanna translate that knowledge to their local elected officials to advocate for accountability and for change in their community. Wow,
3: Um, thank you so much. Christina, can you share what you're planning to focus today?
2: Yes,
5: I want to pause though, and and say I love how Jenny wrote about that, um, or spoke about how it traps or grounds generations. Because I think this work is important, not just now, but for the future. Um, so today, I hope to convey the importance of local community representation and place as political unit. And by political unit, um. I mean the whole uh, thing, government structures, processes, jurisdictions, regulations that intersect across our lived experience and can determine the risks and benefits an infant will face even before they are born into any community. Um, specifically, I'm looking at communities that do not have municipal status, so they are outside of a city boundary or town boundary or charter um, because they don't have their own um, charter they, or city council or mayor, residents in these communities often depend solely on their county government as their local representation. Uh, they are referred to most often as unincorporated communities, a term that I use, but you may know them as census designated places, colonias, most often they're just referred to as small towns. Uh, they are more prevalent in the South and West Coast. Um, this lack of political representation can impact Uh, the risks for adverse environmental conditions and residents' ability to address these risks and social needs. Um, In fact, uh, Robert Bullard, the father of environmental justice, once said that being poor, a person of color, and living in an unincorporated community puts you at triple threat for being exposed to environmental hazards. Unfortunately, unincorporated communities are missing from the majority of social science literature. And so as researchers, especially in epidemiology, um, we often use census designations or metro designations that can render these communities as unseen. And so my hope today is for us to be able to bring attention to the ways that we may make certain communities insignificant.
3: Now, Monica, aren't you doing the same thing in the sense of like now we're talking
0: about the activism or the policy component of this? Yeah, and, and that's the beauty of our work. Um, first, hi, Dr. Williams. I hope you're doing well. And thank you, IAPHS, for hosting this podcast with amazing scholars in a cross-disciplinary approach. I'm really appreciative of the time spent to coordinate this. Um, as Dr. Williams mentioned, my discussion today will focus on why public policy and politics in particular are important determinants of population health. I'll be framing the discussion in the context of my experience as a social worker advocating alongside communities who have historically experienced disparate policy practices that negatively impact their ability to contest displacement. This is also a, part of, a large part of my dissertation work as well. So I think we're going to
3: have a really interesting conversation because we're talking about similar things, but also coming at it from very unique perspectives, and I think that has a lot to do with our own experiences, Um, and I really believe our lived experiences influence the way that we do our work. It really makes us appreciate the importance of context, why it matters, especially when discussing very complex and multifaceted issues. So, Christy, what is the context you come to for your work, and, and why does the context particularly matter?
4: Thanks for that question. I I really had to to dig in. I'm, you know, so honed in on my dissertation research that sometimes I forget this context from which I come and which motivates and compels the work I do. Uh, I've been interested in cities for as long as I can remember as a small kid. I lived in the suburbs of San Francisco, and every year we had an, an annual trip to San Francisco as a family, and I just the energy and the flow and the sights and the sounds and the people and just kind of the, dyna- the the dynamic nature of the city was always so appealing to me although as a kid i really i really knew little about the injustices that shaped uh, urban experiences for many residents particularly black indigenous and latinx residents um, my interest in cities has never has never really waned um and though i still find myself intrigued and energized by elements of the city i think i've developed a much more nuanced and kind of critical awareness around the inequitable urban neighborhood conditions that influence resident and community health and i've also become more interested in understanding urban dynamics and human environment interactions as they unfold at the ne- neighborhood level this took on new mean- new meaning for me Uh, When I became pregnant for the first time at the time, my husband and I were living in Spokane, Washington, I was working as a public health social worker on the Neighborhoods Matter team. My colleagues and I helped organize neighborhood residents to create space for them to identify uh, issues in, in their local neighborhood environment that they wanted to tackle. For their own health and well-being that maybe were marginalized or neglected in planning processes. Um, and in my personal and professional life, uh, I kind of felt this convergence asking questions about maternal and child health and social justice in the context of place. Um, so for example, like I think about where I lived, uh, the neighborhood I lived in, my neighborhood didn't have complete sidewalks uh, the dirt paths and, and alleys were often littered with garbage and used needles. I didn't personally feel safe, um, moving about in my neighborhood and we really couldn't access stores without driving or walking across really, really busy streets. We didn't have a park to walk to, uh, and the property crime rates were fairly high. Like I, I and I, at night, I really struggled to sleep in an added stress. Um, so I ended up developing gestational hypertension with my first pregnancy. And while there are certainly many variables at play here, I became really absorbed in understanding the relationship between the neighborhood built environment, maternal health, and birth outcomes. Uh, And I have to acknowledge though, that I, that because of my economic privilege, my privilege as a white woman, I could leave my neighborhood. I could drive my car to a local park or to really manicured uh, sidewalks where I could walk and engage in, in the physical space of my environment. And I want to recognize that, not everyone has that opportunity and not everyone wants to go visit another neighborhood. Um, and so ultimately you know, we know that where we live matters for our health and what the key driver is of my work is centering pregnant, um, pregnant women and mothers so that when we think about planning and community development, we recognize and prioritize the needs and aspirations of moms and their children.
5: Ah, uh, place is so personal. Um, I grew up and worked on um, health initiatives in California's Central Valley, uh, which is the region that I've chosen to do my research on. Um, it is uh, a land sort of of contradictions. Uh, it's a large agricultural and energy producer region of the state. Um, uh, it's contradictory in the sense that it a uh, half of the state's twenty five billion dollars of ag production. Um, come from the region, yet it has high rates of poverty and um, low wages, has a a rich Latinx population, and it's politically conservative. Uh, I think Devin Nunez and Kevin McCarthy are from this area. Uh, But I grew up in this region, worked on multiple health initiatives. Um, My mother, uh, when I was younger, uh, developed severe asthma and died at the age of 44. So this association of place and health, is very personal, right? And then I'm acutely aware of its importance. Um, But when I was working in um, the Central Valley on different health initiatives, we would get funding from some um, foundations or government entities, but the area is definitely disinvested. And so I was always a big advocate on how to bring more attention to policy protections needed and resources needed in the area. But it was about mid-career that I actually met people who lived in these unincorporated small communities. So one of them was Fairmead. He had actually run out of water for six days. I turn on the faucet, I expect water to come out. Um, yet throughout the Central Valley, there are 450 disadvantaged unincorporated communities that lack access to safe, clean water. Uh, they have to worry about uh, sewage. They some, Many of these rely on septic tanks that can um, overflow with sewage. And so um, it really struck me and I was had the privilege of working with residents across these unincorporated communities in the Central Valley. And it made me think when I was going back to study um, to do my PhD, I started to look into the literature, like what does the literature say about these communities and found that it was nearly absent. And, it, and researchers, as researchers, were told to look at um, gaps in knowledge and I was struck by the fact that this communities know that they're impacted by lack of incorporation status by not having local representat- representation. Advocates like Fermi Community and Friends or the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, they're every day working hard to advocate for these communities. But it's in academia where this gap is. And this is why I think this particular podcast is so important because we're trying to show that we need the wisdom from communities to help fill our gaps. And, and that's really what I'm advocating for.
2: Yeah, I mean, like Christina said, a place is really personal and it, it, it stays with you, whether you, um, you live there now or you've moved on to another community. Um, like most people invested in rural places, I grew up in a rural community, um, primarily agricultural and post-industrial area. Um, the struggle to come to terms with a decline in industry and environmental destruction, um, and the, the subsequent poverty that comes from that. Um, is a place where it feels like a lot of the quote good indicators are going in the wrong direction and, and so too are people's health. Um I grew up in a family that was really deeply affected by a healthcare system that didn't serve them well, and in particular it didn't serve mothers well. So I come to this work from a sense of wanting to see this reversed. I wanna see whole rural communities that thrive and are places of opportunity. As a planner, um, I'm not trained in health, but I see health and in particular maternal and child health as an indicator or as an outcome of how well a rural community is doing. So an indicator of health, even earliest in the life course is poor. To me, that's an indicator that there's something larger wrong. Um, and what's wrong extends far beyond just a lack of access to healthcare for rural communities, um, but a whole host of systems that haven't really served rural people well. Um, I think planning as a field is supposed to, at its core, work in and for the public interest um, to facilitate a more just environment um, and to do so in a way that is empathetic and is compassionate and that um, really cares for a community. Um, I didn't feel that a lot of people were really working in the public interest of low resource people in rural places. Um, And I felt that the institutions that were designed to protect the interests of rural places were really actively aiding in the funneling of resources out of rural communities and facilitating the straining of wealth and and by proxy health in rural places. Um, To me, it's it's unacceptable that we continue to follow a pattern of resource extraction that harms people and it harms the environment and it doesn't give anything back to the land or the people, uh, but it makes some corporations really wealthy. Um, and this isn't something that just happened a long time ago. So right now in Pennsylvania, uh, where I work, we're watching the natural gas industry nosedive. And for all of the the millions and billions of natural gas extracted from this place, We have very little to show besides um, poisoned land and sick people, including um, pregnant women. And our state agencies, who should have protected us, I think have hook, line, and sinker facilitated this exit of wealth from our rural places. So when this happens, generation after generation, of course, we don't have adequate public services here. Um, we should have excellent hospitals and health centers and well-funded schools and and basic public health infrastructure for the amount of resources that have been extracted from our communities. And and we don't have that in Pennsylvania. So I come to this work from a sense of wanting to see uh, much more than healthcare improved. I want to see across the board investment that lifts rural communities and in turn improves health for people in those places. Thanks, Jenny.
0: Um, It's, I think I was just caught up in listening to everybody's story going last. I think that's the privilege I have. (laughs) And I think one of the things I just wanted to point out was, um, the use of rural in two different contexts. So I think rural. Uh, Jenny talked about rural in in, um, terms of the rust belt, which is mostly manufacturing. Uh, We think of Detroit, all those major cities, too. Um, But then I I, I go back to Christina, and she discussed rural in terms of colonias and unincorporated areas in the Central Valley um, where they have large chunks of agricultural land. And so I just wanted to, you know, put some attention on the dichotomy of the terms we also use when we define th- place, um, especially when we want to tag things as rural, urban. Um, I think what you both um, touched on was that it is defined by the people. And that is that is the most crucial part, right? Um, so while Christina described California Central Coast, I'm also from the Central Valley. Um, in a small town where there's typically two distinct groups, um, farm laborers, mostly of Mexican descent. So basically you either work the farm or you own the farm. It was very little in between um, given the agricultural um, population there. And I witnessed various health inequities and access to um, decent uh, housing for farm laborers. Um, We were talking about little shanty shacks that people live in, even to this day, if we think about it, and labor camps. Um, Fair pay is still an issue, obviously, and humane work environments. And so this was all happening as I was growing up. I would see these inequities and I would wonder, like, why? I mean, we, they're basically putting food on people's table. And so the context is important for me because it was a primer for the type of social work I would later engage in. And it also provided me with a lens that not many academics have. And I have come to appreciate that, um, actually. Um, I will focus a little bit on my work or my when I lived in San Francisco in the Bay Area just because um, this really impacted the way I saw the world, right? So I came from an urban spot and now I'm... um, in San Francisco, in a large urban city where tons of people are crammed into like 50 square miles of dense space. Um, And one thing that I came to realize really fast is that San Francisco is one of the most, um, we think of it as being one of the most diverse cities in the world, right? But if you look at a map, like visually, it is the most (laughs) segregated city um, with names like Chinatown, La Mission, Japantown, Tenderloin, Bayview Hunters Point, and affluent neighborhoods like North Beach. So many of these boundaries haven't changed since they were established in the 1700s. When you live in San Francisco and you go visit, you're like, I'm gonna go get my burrito, my Mexican burrito in the mission. I'm gonna go to Chinatown for authentic food. And this is just the way we are conditioned to think about the space. Um, So the physical location of these neighborhoods determines whether you're vulnerable to environmental racism and or displacement. Well, in San Francisco, I worked in the Bayview Hunters Point and the mission. Um, and these are important because the Hunters Point is home to a majority African-American population and was once home to the United States Navy's largest nuclear testing lab. So let's just sit with that for a minute. Nuclear testing lab <laughs> back in the day, and now people are residing there. So it's no surprise that the EPA has designated this neighborhood as a Superfund site. Due to the racist political economy in San Francisco, the breast cancer rates for women residing in the Bayview-Hunters Point are twice as the San Francisco average, and the life expectancy is 14 years less than that of somebody living in the affluent neighborhood that I just kind of mentioned, North Beach. So while I worked in the Bayview, I lived in the Mission, um, a predominantly Latina-Latino neighborhood. The pressures that began during the dot-com boom there in that small neighborhood um, continued to this day. I think it's kind of almost like this petri dish for gentrification and displacement. Um, You can see different waves that have happened and gone on. In 2018, 8,000 Latinas and Latinos were displaced. That's 8,000, that's 25% of the community. Eventually I too was displaced and that's how I ended up eventually in Arizona. Um, when I go back to visit, as many of my colleagues have mentioned, place is like kind of visceral. It's sensory. Um, and I have emotions when I go back and my local panaderia or bakery, um, has been forced to close because of the owner's choice to convert it into, um, a hipster coffee shop. So that really, those two dichotomies, you know, the, the, the rural agricultural and then the, the city have really impacted the way I view, um, place and space. I think it, it it impacts
3: even if we're talking about outside the context of rural and urban. I think we're also seeing always this tension. I think of different things with the people versus what the government may want from a patriarchal society versus the people who ever live and experiences and what they want. And within my own work, it's something I struggle with Um because I'm local. Governments have the power to address a lot of the issues that. Communities are dealing with, and even if they can't, they know where to go for different resources to help address these different things, like, for example, housing or access to community resources. But they they don't value community driven or community engaged issues. And from your experience, you know, like as community members or being a part of a grassroots organization, how can we work on like shifting this power dynamic of? The government has all the power. They have all the say so. There's this patriarchal this power dynamic and being able to actually engage and hear from like the actual people who live there, who live through this experience and addressing their concerns so we can even talk about before we can even get to help, you know? Like how, you know, for Monica, you were the last one to just talk about like this tension that you were seeing. How do you think we can really start moving this, this power shift? If, if, I can't lack of a better word.
0: To describe that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Williams. Um, I think when, you know, we were talking about this podcast as a group offline and thinking of the concept of power, we had such an organic conversation related to power, we were, we all view it so differently. So I think the discussion really needs to start from my point of view, um, how we conceptualize power, right? Um, there's this, that notion that communities don't possess an innate collective power. Um, And so we're coming in and we're gonna solve the issues as researchers, academics, or even community members. Um, But in reality, in in the context, the way I frame my work, there's no power to be shifted. Like the the power is with the community already. Um, But I think we should be asking ourselves, like how do we encourage local governments to incorporate the community in the decision-making process? Um, now, when we talk about local governments, they have the ability to control barriers to participation for community members, you know, they set the agenda, they they tell us what time we're meeting, at what place we're meeting, <laughs> who gets to talk for how long, you know, what kind of microphone is used. Um, people with different abilities don't have access to these meetings, even now that they're online with COVID um, happening in all of these meetings um, via Zoom. Um This already places community advocacy efforts at a deficit. That's the reality of this. Um, You take, for example, the light rail in South Phoenix, which my dissertation work is focused on, local government is the force shaping the narrative for why the light rail is needed. Despite community resistance, um, the Arizona Department of Transportation has created this myth that this area, this neighborhood, South Phoenix, they need the light rail. (laughs) they're not going to survive with the light rail. And that is so not true. Um, And you can just talk to people, talk to residents, and you would get the idea that they want infrastructure fixed. They want roads fixed. They don't need a shiny, and they describe it. And this is from some interviews I've done. They don't want a shiny new thing going through their, their um, neighborhood. So as organizers, we should advocate alongside the community for decision-making authority um, I think policy and local government should be aware of the interrelationship between power, governance, politics, macroeconomic policies, and population health, including how these conditions produce wealth inequality and often exacerbate, you know, the patterns of discrimination that we are all talking about that um, have generational implications for the racial and ethnic minorities we um, work with. Monica, I saw the same thing
3: happen or similarly in Atlanta with the Atlanta Beltline. You know, community members are advocating against it. Not because, in this case, not because they don't necessarily want this development. They've been begging for this improvement for a long time. But the fact that it's causing displacement and they're doing little to nothing to address it. So they're, in particular, this is in black neighborhoods, historically black neighborhoods who are being displaced for similar reasons. Now, Christina, do you have similar, different perspective on talking again about this
5: power dynamic? Yeah, so it's so interesting because the high-speed rail in the Central Valley actually displaced many communities. And so similar conversations are occurring. And so I I wanna agree wholeheartedly with uh, Monica uh, regarding specifically the ways that we need to institutionalize power, right? Um, I do think that power can be shifted. And I do think that communities are powerful. However, I do feel like we need to pay attention to the way our government processes incentivize certain behaviors. Jenny spoke earlier about the way that um, resource extraction um, is hurting our communities. And that's because oftentimes, like in unincorporated communities, counties are incentivized because they have very few revenue generating options to um, lean towards corporations. And so that um, lack of revenue generating power sort of creates this warped relationship between residents in these areas and the county and so I you know I love what she was saying about making sure that it's not just about participation um, because when there is participation communities do show up right um, I uh, served on an advisory uh, a citizen advisory committee for our city's uh, revision of our general plan and I loved uh, the residents in one um school that were, it was a group of parents that were learning English while their kids were in school. And so we asked uh, the planning commission to hold one of their listening sessions um, in that classroom. And so uh, community organizers worked with the residents. They, you know, drew pictures of what they wanted to see in the community, made lists uh, in their uh, English Spanish workbooks. They opened them up and highlighted words like park and sidewalks so that they could communicate um And then when the planners came, uh, the, um, they actually had uh, the parents had placed the seats so that they were interspersed. So it was like parent planner. Um, and so I, I've seen these types of efforts um, where they have been successful. But I've also seen that opposition. Right. Uh, I've seen in a community where um, in a different county where they brought in police dogs at a planning meeting where they put sheriffs at the corners of the streets to create intimidation. So without being able to have this institutionalized in the processes where decision-making power is actually embedded in communities, uh, we're going to continue to see imbalances in the ways decisions are made. I agree. I mean,
3: if we even, okay, so let's say we shift this conversation now talking about from grassroots efforts from a community perspective. Now we're all researchers, right? And we have a history of researchers coming into a community, getting the information we need and leave, not actually making our work benefit or even help or even find out what are their questions? What do we can do to help in work? Like everyone has said so far, work alongside them on these issues. So my question goes to Monica first of just how can researchers again, probably not using the first time for but shifting this
0: power and engaging concerns. Like as academics, how can we navigate through this? Um, so as researchers, uh, I think we should remember that community members are experts of their own lived experience. Correct. I, I view in my work um, researchers as co-collaborators. Um, and this goes beyond just the a- academic space. Like I invite them to meetings that I have with my committee so that we can um, figure out together if I'm representing the community and I need to be checked. <laughs> I want to make sure that even when I'm in the academic halls that I am actually saying what they, they, they want and what I'm translating and, and saying it in terms that they understand. I think I get sometimes caught up with this academic speak, you know, um, and we lose in that translation what the community is actually trying to tell us. So. Um, I think that also we need to recognize the, um, the privilege, right? So I've had an experience where I was part of a community. I'd worked years organizing. And then I got my master's in social work and I'm in this PhD program. And my position within that community changed. You know, I was bringing my own expertise, I guess you call it. That makes me feel uncomfortable to say that. But I'm bringing along an, acad- an academic institution that doesn't always have a good relationship with folks in the community. And so that, I, I, that shook me. I'll be honest with you, it shook me. I, I hadn't ever experienced that. You think as a woman of color, I'm gonna get this education, I'm gonna come back and help my people. But there's this weird place and space that you're in for a minute, right? Until you can build trust up, but always remembering that I'm carrying that history, even if it's not mine from the academic space with me as I engage in this. Um, and I also believe that engaging communities should be happening long before data collection, <laughs> long. And I, I'm talking, you know, I've worked with tribal leaders who are like, uh-uh, we meet once, uh, you know, every two months, you can join us then. But, you know, so that makes our academic timeline so different from those in the community. I mean, if we think of Native American populations and even, you know, um, any different com- community, you know, you just have to be on their timeline. Um, and engage the way they ask you to. I, I Monica, you—you've hit
3: so many nuggets of things that I'm just like, yes, I completely agree, or experience, or feel similarly to what you know what you're saying. And so I—I want to hear Christy's perspective on this same question of like academics and academic institutions engaging with community.
4: Yeah, and I and I I. Monica, thank you. You know, for your your perspective, particularly around academic timelines. When I when I think about what are the ways as an as an academic that I might be able to shift some of these power dynamics, I I I can't help but think about how my very identity as an academic really reproduces these power dynamics, and that whether I have a shared identity, the, the identities I do and don't share with the mothers I hope to work alongside, uh, and also my identity as an academic these are rife with issue in the context of, of the research space, right? I'm, I'm part and parcel of, um, a system founded and rooted upon white supremacy uh, and this very exclusive place of knowledge production. And so in thinking about, uh, particularly around Monica's comment around, um, academic timelines, I, I also think about, um, the peer review process, right? And so, and how, um, how exclusive that process is and what that means for actually genuinely and authentically engaging in meaningful community engaged research and so I think on the one hand I see a, I think a couple of pathways one i'm I feel really fortunate to be at a university that uh, has a commitment to community expertise uh, community partnership and also is attempting to transcend this narrative that the only place for research is in peer reviewed journals and I think that opens up that opens up possibility for a type of engagement that looks fundamentally different than maybe how we're taught in a more traditional academic sense. Um, and so, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's not about my, my work going into a, a peer review journal. And that's where it stays. It's about, it's about work that's focused on sustainable and meaningful change, but not from my perspective. It's root, it has to be rooted in community vision. And so I think for me, the other side to this is, how do I engage in in participatory methods and in, in, inclusive approaches to research? Um, I want to recognize that you know they're telling me to get out of this PhD program. And so the the methods that I've selected, qualitative GIS, is, is an attempt to begin that process to be more inclusive of mothers' geographies, right? Maternal geographies, the the spatial knowledge they carry because they live and embody the experiences of place. Um but I recognize that. Uh, for me, as I move on from the PhD program, my goal, wherever I end up, is to begin to do the hard work of building relationships with mothers in the community. And that's intensive and comes well before, uh, data collection. And it, and it's really about not me setting an agenda, but it's about me listening and learning and maintaining responsiveness and humility in the context of, of mothers in place. And so I hope that eventually that's the direction that I can take my, my work where I also respect spaces and places where I'm not welcome. Right. Um, but I, but I, I hope that mothers become my full research partners in the process and the change that the change that comes from that is rooted in their vision um, for their neighborhoods and their communities, not mine or what I think it
3: ought to be. I think it, I agree with you, Chris, we could be very thoughtful about all of this and again, you kind of brought up the whole fact of being a student and how that also plays in this dynamic. I think when we're doing work, we're coming from these communities or trying to be part of these communities, trying to be thoughtful and trying to engage alongside them instead of coming in and, and, and being this expert already on what it is they need. And when we're working on work, like that's not cleanly within our discipline. I think that adds another level of complexity. So In the case for all of us, we're not working in the traditional areas of our discipline and it complicates things. So like as a student, I had to have a whole outside committee of experts on different areas that my actual committee at my defense, majority of them had no expertise at all. And so how do you navigate this, this working on something that's important, it's part of your lived experience, you want to engage thoughtfully with communities. But how do you navigate through that in the academic institution, and how do you find the mentorship, the community? How did you guys go about trying to engage while knowing there is going to be a whole lot of pushback or just really difficulty of people understanding the importance of being an interdisciplinary research? Yeah,
2: I mean that's a, a great question, Patrice. I mean, how do you even put together a committee um, when when people are don't are, don't speak across departments? Um, so. I'm in a city planning program, uh, I study rural planning. I work in a pediatric teaching hospital. Um, but I'm usually talking about zoning or infrastructure. Um, uh, and I work in rural places where there aren't a lot of planners. So I'm talking about how we should plan for health. Um, there's just a lot of contradictory things in there. Um, and I, I find like them almost always at the edge of conversations. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be in them. <laughs> um, But as a graduate student who's still in training and still a student, um, that working at the edge of disciplines, I feel like it can really shake your confidence. Um, You sort of feel like you don't really fit in anywhere. Um, You don't really know enough about any one thing. Um, You're not really advancing any one topic enough. um, You're not keeping everyone happy. Um, So it's not a real clear roadmap to follow. Um, And I think on a bad day, it feels kind of lonely. Uh, But on a good day, you think, like, look at all these friends I have in epidemiology and public policy and sociology. So it's really pretty fun. Um, I have found I feel like having like your hype person is essential. Someone who says, like, listen, you're going to do this. You're going to do it your way. And I just really believe in what you're doing. Um, And this is where the health policy research scholars program has been really critical for me. Um, This is a, a community of people. Um, of scholars like the women that are here today on this podcast. Um, This is a community that I feel like you all really believe in me. Um, You're really investing in me and helping me clarify my own vision. And I know that you're all going to hold me accountable uh, for being a dynamic and evolving person and an evolving scholar. Um, So for other graduate students in this place, I would say find your people, (laughs) the people that believe in you. And let the rest of them who say you're not a real planner, you're not a real whatever, just let them go. Um, I think reach out to the people that you think are interesting and do the work that, that speaks to you and it speaks to your community and speaks to the people that you feel like you have a responsibility to. Um, a, a mentor told me a while back, and I felt like this advice always kind of served me really well. Um, she said, consistently take steps that are inconsistent with what is expected, and you're not going to get anywhere by accident. Um, So I guess on a more practical note, if you're at the edge of disciplines as a student, um, be a really diligent record keeper. Track your progress and be able to describe exactly how what you're doing fits into the goals and the requirements of multiple disciplines. Um, And if you do not define your work and how it fits, you're leaving it up to others to do that. And they might not see the connections that you see. Um, So one of the things about doing this type of work is you get to show up every day saying, this is me, this is what I care about, this is how I'm gonna do this work, and eventually, people will follow along. So, keep your records carefully, <laughs> find your people, and and define who you wanna be and what you want your work to be.
3: I completely agree. I had to co- incorporate a lot of those elements when I was working on mine. I mean, Monica, is it, is
0: it different, similar? was your experience? Yes, first and foremost, Jenny, um, we lift up your work and we honor you and we will always be here to give constructive feedback. And like Jenny said, I mean, I don't know if anyone else agrees, but I, I feel like this group, we are so diverse yet so the same mm-hmm. in terms of how we move uh-huh. in academia. And I appreciate that. Um I Always I'm appreciative that we're all women. I don't know. <laughs> it's just my thing. Um, But I have to say, I've been on calls with everybody. And there have been times where they're like, you're being a little too this or maybe focus on this. And they're willing to give me that energy um, to make me a better scholar. Um So let's see. Uh, what is it like as a graduate social work student working on the fringe of my discipline? I always laugh because I say hanging out on the margin is like, that's my thing. Ask any one of these, my, my colleagues here, um, and I laugh, but it's super true. I'm always like, how do we push the boundaries of what we're doing? How do we yeah. take it to the next level? You know, um, so I am in the School of Social Work at Arizona State University. And my um, research interrogates like race, class and barriers to mobility um, in South Phoenix, like I talked about which is a primarily Latina and Latino and African-American neighborhood. So I'm examining all these things that are really outside of the school of social work. Um, and so while social work has historically been focused on and linked to child welfare with a micro level focus, you know my work tends to be at the macro level with a strong focus on like why inequities persist. And I'm always asking those questions, why? So why are we? Why do we even have a child welfare system? What are the decisions we're making way before then about people's access to um, safe spaces, healthy foods, um, education? What, what are those? What are those barriers that are systemic and institutional? Um, so it's needless to say that my focus on transportation and displacement um, and how this impacts health and the ecology of a neighborhood is not typical in the profession. Um, but because of this. I have actively, like Jenny said, actively sought out mentors outside of my discipline um, in sociology and urban planning. Um, I would like to say that my committee chair has been super supportive of me working um, at this level and in this context, which is not easy for somebody trying to rein somebody like me in, right? <laughs> um, but... um Additionally, my Health uh, Policy Research Scholarship Network, as I just acknowledged, um, I've been introduced to so many amazing people, and it's great to have this network that takes academics years to build, and I already have it, and that just, I think that really sets me apart from other scholars, Um and... Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. My advice to other social workers working on the fringe, like you don't have to be in an academic space to be doing that, right? Find your people, like Jenny said. This begins with sharing your ideas, even if they're at the beginning stages of formulating them and people think it's too radical, like connect with like-minded folks because the more you start saying what you're thinking, you can shape your thoughts and you're going to find your village, your people um, and mentors that are with you and want to see you succeed. and I'm hoping that at some point we won't use the term radical, we won't use these terms um, when we think of people working on the fringe. It'll just be common sense and common um, ideas that we should all be incorporating into into our work in and out of academia. I, yes, that was that's true.
3: I mean that's completely true. Um, I remember when I first mentioned that I wanted to do work on sleep, and they're like, "You're an urban." How how are you making this connection? And it was just I had to, like you said, c- repeatedly, and then find people who are like, yes, what she's saying makes sense. Let's let's see where she's going with this. And I think it's really important to even find committee members who don't understand what you're talking about on your committee who are willing and enga- willing to engage and, and see where you're going and support you in that as you're finding other people who are the content experts who can give you, you know, yes. you know, the other information that you need to go through this process. I think I never would have graduated otherwise, but I'm grateful that it was very thoughtful um, work done on both ends to see how, how can we do this, even though we don't completely get it you know, how can we see her through this process? And I think a lot of things that Jenny and Monica have expressed so far is completely true. And Christy, I think you said you have a similar but unique experience in this in comparison to other people who feel like we're working on the fringe. Yeah,
4: yeah. And I, I, um, first, I just, uh, I can't over or understate, I guess, how, how important this community has been a uh, part of HPRS and a part of this this particular group of of women focused on place based research. I I don't feel like I ever leave a conversation with y'all where my ex, my consciousness hasn't been expanded in some way about how to think about place and its intersection with health. I feel like there's an open door policy. There's always opportunity to um, to banter back and forth, to to play ideas off one another, to to think differently about. Uh, I know Jenny and I were even chatting uh, you know offline today about. Negotiating our identities in the context of the work we do. And I am so appreciative that that this is such an important part of, of who I am and the identity I'm forming as a scholar. Um, and then with that, I, I, I come from a program at the University of Denver that I think place, place has been place in an environment. I think more broadly, um, have been engaged differently, um, in our program than I think maybe other social work programs. There's really been. Uh, a diligent effort to think about environment, uh, more broadly in the context of social work. And we were guided by this person and environment framework, but it's environment in that is often limited to the social environment. So we're not often thinking about, um, physical spaces and places and the impact that has on people. Um, and so I, you know, as a master's student at DU, I had the opportunity to lead a student group called Eco Conscious. I, I interned with a youth, a local youth led, food justice organization, I completed a research project around the environment in social work curriculum. And so in that way, I find that where I'm at is unique in its support of place and environment. And also, I often feel lost as a scholar, I regularly ask myself, okay, am I social worky enough? Is this social worky enough? (laughs) And it's so I'm so grateful that I have open minded and supportive mentors who create the space for me to navigate that part of my identity and also have access to interdisciplinary courses across campus where I've developed relationships with uh, other faculty who provide immense support to me as I think about my research and my place in place-based research, right? And so I, I, don't get me wrong. I have days or like moments where I'm utterly confused about what I'm doing and who I am. And sometimes I cry too, right? And, and that, uh, I, at the end of the day, I think that as I come into my own as an interdisciplinary scholar and with the supports that I do have, that there's so much opportunity to, to know, be, and do better. And that I think is the power in this identity that I hold. And I'm so grateful for that. And all of the support that, that I get, um, from so many kind of, my son talks about filling buckets, right. And you all fill my bucket. Um, you bring in so much, um, so much energy and passion uh that I I just I can't help but keep going so
0: Christy that's beautiful I with the wisdom of a child like I love that it just puts you and you your your person and your work in perspective oh I agree Christina I mean similarly different what's your experience
5: yeah, so uh, first of all, I love this group, so I'm joining the Love Fest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not, uh, not only is everyone here a great scholar that, uh, you know, sort of pushes me to think deeply, uh, they're amazing human beings that cheer me on and that send me memes. I, I think if you're going to be a doctoral student, please send the memes, right? Um, but, but I, I also want to recognize that it's, a, it's been a huge privilege to be part of this health policy research scholars network and be part of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's larger leadership networks. I feel um, before studying for my qualifying exams, I was given access to a professor through our network. One of my uh, fellow scholars was like, oh, you can talk to this professor about how to do your propensity score matching. So I feel like, or if we don't have access to an article, we are our best source. Like we are an extended library source. So this is you know, uh, really been invaluable. Um, but I also realized that not everyone is um, fortunate enough to be in this position. And so I wanted to kind of offer a few sort of practical suggestions. Uh, my first year of my program was very difficult. Um, using a Winnie the Pooh analogy, I was like a tigger in a rabbit world. Um, <laughs> so I was bouncing around, I was super passionate uh, and was told by a few people that I didn't belong. Um, so this required a change. Um, I was fortunate to find an advisor that was willing to send me articles on a subject, even if it had nothing to do with her work, and was willing to hear me say unincorporated communities 999,000 times, you know, not the easiest term to hear. Um, I had peers that knew nothing about my topic, but were my greatest cheerleaders and believed in me. Um, so that's also important. Um, but I also had to take some risks. So I had to commit to this path. Um, I took classes in other disciplines. I talked to librarians of other disciplines, which is really helpful in trying to figure out how the terms might change from discipline, um, where I, I might want to go. Um, I joined cross-disciplinary writing groups. Um, even last year, I heard the term legal epi- epidemiology, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's me. Uh, so I think this is uh, super helpful. Um, but I I feel like, um, even though it's uncomfortable at times to sort of not be defined by conventional social work terms, I feel like I'm making the profession stronger. I'm teaching my students how to move across macro, mezzo, and micro spaces in the school of social welfare, showing them how to do policy mapping, um, and more than that, I think from other fields may not recognize the breadth that social workers are engaged in. So I'm I'm fortunate to be able to bring that to the table.
3: Awesome. That's that's amazing. And I'm I'm glad that we've all incorporated all of you have incorporated like very practical experience, understanding that we have a very unique experience that not every other graduate student has. So I really appreciate you thinking about like what are other resources that is accessible to them at their institution that can help them navigate through this process. So now we're gonna switch modes a little bit. Um and I really wanna just talk about like COVID happened, right? COVID happened, March completely, you know, put a dent in a lot of things for a lot of people. And when I even think about the work that I was doing on displacement, I already had people who were very stressed out, worrying about, can I pay my property taxes? Like, we're talking about people who their property tax one year was $75 and next year was 1500 So we're not talking about graduate, we're talking about huge changes, and they're worrying, can I pay this? Can I pay rent? And then you have COVID happened, and now people have lost jobs. People worrying about even more now. How am I gonna get evicted? Am I gonna my house is gonna be foreclosed on? Like, how am I gonna pay my bills? How am I gonna feed my kids? And just imagining the stress and how that's impacting your sleep even more, which could be exacerbating different downstream health issues. And so with COVID happening in the context of your work. I mean, how has it affected your community? How have you adjusted, you know, as a result of all of this? And anyone who wants to answer can definitely answer that.
5: Yeah, so I I definitely... Um so one, I want to acknowledge that the Central Valley has been one of the hotspots in California, it wasn't originally, right? I think the more urban dense areas were hotspots. But as we came to more depend on essential workers in our food production, so immigrant labor workforces working in our fields continue to work even with the fires going on and the bad air. Um, I'm humbled because they're, um, they're maintaining us and yet we, they don't have the same protections in the workplace. Um, and benefits to be able to protect themselves. And what's been interesting, I think, for all of us is, you know, before COVID, I think, um, and even maybe before these last three and a half years, but uh, people would say, oh, I'm not interested in politics, or politics don't really affect me. And what we're seeing is the way that these sort of multiple jurisdictions, um, our federal system, right? We're seeing how this is playing out in real time, you know, who do we listen to? Our city mayor, our county board of supervisors, our county sheriff, why is the county sheriff saying that he's not gonna enforce a state governor's order? Do we listen to our federal government? And so I think COVID has really shown us that it isn't that policies at every level have life and death consequences. And I think it's really sort of um, brought out these tensions and so I think it's it's making me think about how important it is to look at what we take for granted.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean yeah, COVID has really changed and I mean all of you right now are still going through your PhDs. I, I mean I could just imagine how that's the rent wrench and like even when we submitted the the like proposal of what we're gonna do, the things that we hope to accomplish by this time, all of that's evolved or changed or as a result. Um In addition to, you know, within the academic space, even though we are in a privileged space in comparison to our community members. And so switching gears slightly, I mean, when we we, we initially, when we started out, we were talking about place, space and health. Right. And we defined what these things were. And we see just a lot of big and unanswered questions. And based on your experiences, taking into consideration, even with COVID coming in. Like how there's a lot of going on and we're working with the system, but then having something else on un- the for just come into rail things. Where do you think more research is needed? Where do you think what are the big things that we need to be grappling with moving forward talking about
0: place based That's a good question, Patrice. Um just slightly going back to the to the question on COVID, like I just keep thinking about that. And I just think of the devaluation of black and brown bodies right now um mm. on top of COVID and you know the question you know how has your own research in light of COVID changed like how have I changed I you know and not to make this about me but how how can I be a better researcher to not re-traumatize communities um and be more mindful of the questions I ask um and um Yeah, it's a tough question. I hadn't answered it right away because I I was just kind of thinking about it because there's so much happening that that COVID has exposed so much and we already have, you know, we've had these discussions in in depth, but um, I think because of that and because of what we just said, I think that social work and urban planning literature I think we could do a better job at analyzing the production of place and space um, more through a like a theoretical lens that addresses the institutional and structural racism that's kind of come to the surface, but many of us know that has been there for generations. Uh-huh. Um, I think there's a lack of framing the topic in a theory that identifies these factors as drivers for the topic of this podcast, right? Local political economies of health. Um, and I think that, um, if as researchers, you're not looking at race, then what are we doing? What are we doing? If that is not at the core of what you're doing, then yeah. we need to rethink, um, how you're actually, d- um, tackling social determinants of health, right? Access to, um, to, to food and safe spaces. Um, but, you know, it, it's a work in progress. And I think we have a good team working towards it. And I know many colleagues are working to to change the narrative and look at this through a new lens. And so I'm hopeful for the future.
2: And I think building on what Monica said, um, something that, that I noticed, or I kind of felt like was threaded through a lot of our conversation today um, was around the role of space and health and gender. And I, I think this is also changing from COVID too. I think we hear a lot about the scholarship around planning and gender that happened in the 1980s and the 1990s, the feminist planning agenda, I think it doesn't really account for how we view gender and sexuality and gender roles in 2020. Um, and I'm not sure we've really evolved our thinking on what it means to, to practice and build communities that are supportive of today's families. And I think this is super apparent with COVID and, and people's family, uh, patterns and day-to-day activities changing and I don't think that planners have really given very little thought to how do we plan for families with children and how do we support um, mothers and families so that's something that I would like to see planners turn towards and I don't think they can do that without talking to social workers Um, so that's something I would like to see some research grow in that area and I feel like from this group it's quite likely that'll happen so that makes me feel like Monica said it makes me feel hopeful yeah
3: anyone else want to tackle this you know this big you know big quick big unanswered questions perspective I,
5: I think I would just like to make a pitch for the ways that when we're considering our geographical areas of unit that we're thinking about the meaning behind that Um, you know, we, it's, you know, often because of urgency, you know, we're asked to use data that's available. Um, and unfortunately what ends up happening is we continue to compound the problem, right? Because if you're in the other category, if you don't have enough statistical power, these smaller, hard to reach communities can be left out of our current research on place, um, and space. Using mixed methods is one of the ways, um, I'm trying to use, uh, I'm actually using for my quantitative quantitative component data that was compiled by advocates that literally they went to the census um, designated places and found that there were 3.6 million people in these areas, but going through their own aerial photography, talking to communities, doing ground truthing, they found an additional 2.8 million that had been missed. Right? That's significant. So, um, I think we need to challenge, um, what we think we know about place and how moving forward with new technologies, we can ensure that communities aren't being obscured. Very good point. Very good point. Um, I, I
3: just, I, I what I love is that we're having this conversation that I don't think happens very often. And we're bringing a lot of issues that are actually talked about in a lot of different fields. But we don't always talk together, um, you know. From a planning and a social work, like how we have a lot of overlap and 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 value what each brings to the table. And I think today that that could be a really great conversation moving forward that we will continue to have, and not just with these two fields, but just we we intersect with so many other areas that we need to have a communication and talk about how to move forward. And I think because we're talking about very complex, very nuanced. Situations like the, the earlier example that Monica really went to highlight that even when we use things like rural and urban, it's not the same depending on the context we're talking about. And so I think we brought up some really things that we need to grapple with moving forward in our fields, but also together. That I think it's just awesome that we're able to do this and then also do this in the context of a pandemic. That's added a whole new
0: layer to, and, and,
3: and in any way, exacerbates some of the things we've been talking about for a long time. Anyway. Like, a lot of this is not new, but it's highlighting how it's really bringing really things to the surface that people have to acknowledge and at some point address, and we're hoping sooner than later. And so I'm gonna, I think at this point, I think we're 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 gonna hand this back over to Michael, our podcast host, to wrap us up.
1: Thank you so much for just a really amazing conversation. Um, I think this is a great place to wrap up. Uh, So thanks again to Christy, Monica, Christina, Ginny, and Patrice for joining us today and hosting such a great conversation. Uh, For listeners, if you'd like to hear more, really engaging conversations like this, uh, about how experts from different methodological and disciplinary traditions work together um, across boundaries to understand and improve population health Uh, Check out upcoming episodes of our podcast, Sick Individuals and Sick Populations. Um, And also be sure to check out the work of other scholars uh, participating in our annual meeting. Uh, Visit our website, iaphs.org, for additional recordings from our conference. Thanks, everybody.